fans, welcome to an all-new, special, exciting episode. It's not really special, and it's honestly probably not all that exciting, but it is new, and it's all new. It is Charting the Territories. My name is Al Getz, and for the first time, you are hearing my voice uh, as a 50-year-old, 50-year-old grown-ass man coming to you along with my co-host with me as always, John Boucher. Hey, John, how are you? How's it going? Happy, happy birthday. Thank you. And I, wish as I, a noise, matter I should have got a noisemaker. Oh, I, I didn't get any noisemakers. But. Oh, I've been told I can handle the noisemaking all on my own. <laughs> so that's nothing to worry about. But we've got a lot to talk about this month. We're going to start with something different. You see, John, a while back, asked me what my mailing address was. Uh, and so I gave it to him and I figured he would just send me a little, you know, a birthday card in an envelope. And one day I get a notice uh, from the concierge that a package has arrived for me. And I, he says it's just a birthday card, but it's in it's in a big, you know, one of those priority and uh, priority mail sleeves. Um, so it's, you know, like eight and a half by 11 type size. And it's pretty bulky. It feels like there's some cardboard in there. So I don't know what it is. And I asked John if we could do a live unboxing where I open it up for the first time on this podcast and tell everybody what's inside. And he says, okay, but I'm going to uh, reach over and grab this uh, package and open it. Okay. All right, here we go. So like I said, it's in uh, one of those priority mail envelopes. You get to tear it open. A lot of packing in there, too. Uh, If it... If you did all this packing just for like a little card, like it's one of those, like a Russian nesting doll, where inside the box is a smaller box, and inside that is a big envelope, and inside that is a smaller envelope, inside that. All right, okay. Oh, there's a. Okay, so yeah, there's a big piece of cardboard filling, uh, and it's got your return address on it. I opened it up to see what it was, and there's another one here. Okay, and now. Inside the package, contained between two large pieces of cardboard, is another envelope that we're going to open, and it's bubble-wrapped. I think this is a Russian nesting doll. I think this is all a rib, and it's just a little card. It can never be too safe. There's some bubble wrap, so whatever's in here is precious cargo that could not be bent uh, or folded or mutilated. There's some card... Whoop. Oh, oh, there's a card. Hold on. A card literally just went flying across the floor. This is going horribly wrong. Hold on one second. <laughs> All right. Okay, so there's, there's a card, but there's something else. Uh, so we're going to open the card first. May I read the card out loud? Absolutely. Okay. You may have to describe the card, too. To, for, for. <laughs> It is a picture of a toad on the cover, and it says, have a totally, T-O-A-D-A-L-L-Y, great birthday. 2021, happy birthday, Al. Hope it's a great one. Yours in sport, John. But there is something else here, and I, I I have a feeling I know what they are. I have a feeling they are wrestling programs of some sort, and indeed, oh wow, we've got a few things here. Okay, so we've got a clear plastic sleeve with a few goodies in it. There is a picture, ah, Red McKim with, what's what's the announcer's name? Oh, it's a Jody Holden, Jody is that Holden. his name? Jody Holden, or Holden? Hol- Holden, I think. 
Okay, so it's a picture of Red McKim, who is, uh, as as if you listen to the podcast regularly, you'll know, was a uh, appeared regularly for decades for Leroy McGurk and almost never wrestled anywhere else because he had a full time job with the Tulsa, Oklahoma Fire Department uh, the whole time he was wrestling. But there's a picture. Uh, of him with uh, wrestling announcer Jody Holden. We also have some programs. This is from the McGurk territory, and this is, uh, I believe that's Ivan Putski on the cover. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Issue number 39. So that's pretty early on. But given that Ivan's there, it's probably going to be late 72. Um, we've got, yeah, we've got Dory We've uh, as the world champ. We've got Ramon Torres as the world junior heavyweight champion. So that puts it... Uh, in seventy, in late seventy one, yeah, this would be late seventy one because Putsky came in in August. Ramon Torres beat Rip Kirby, who's Roger Kirby, for the World Junior Heavyweight Title sometime in the late summer, early fall. Um, uh, okay, we've got the Dusty Dusty Rhodes wrestling against Dale Lewis um, yeah. again. Yeah, so that that puts it at, in seventy one for sure. So yeah, oh, that's great. Thank you very much. And there's another program. From All-Star Championship Wrestling, which is the official WWA wrestling magazine. Uh, and there's a bloody picture on the cover. Look what Bruiser did. And then uh, also on the cover is King Ernie Ladd, who reveals the three men who can beat me. So who are they? The three men, according to Ernie Ladd, the three men who can beat him. Um, uh, it looks like Dick the Bruiser, Cowboy Bob Ellis, and Sailor Art Thomas. Are, are mentioned. Oh, nope. No, it's it's one of those uh, Grover, there's a monster at the end of this book twists. Because at the end of the interview, Ernie Ladd says, the only men who can beat me are me, myself, and I. Ah. So those are the three men who can beat yeah. Ernie Ladd. And then we have, oh, uh, Wild Red Berry. And this, this is a pretty, uh, this is a this would have been after you know, while he was managing, but it looks to be early on in his post-wrestling uh, managerial career. Wild Redberry is holding a copy of the complete works of Shakespeare, and he's holding his glasses uh, the way J.J. Dillon always used to when he was at ringside. This is a great picture. Um, uh, one of the things a lot of people don't know, and John, you might not even know this, but at one point I did a, a one-season-long podcast with my friend Dan Wilson, who's a wrestling manager, among other things, in the South. And we called it Somehow We Manage. And it was a podcast about managing managers and so on and so forth. And on, I think, the first episode, we talked about Wild Red Berry and Bobby Davis, because uh, we believe oh, wow. them to be the first two uh, wrestling managers uh, in, in what we consider, you know, managers to be today. Yeah, well, so, I would love well, to actually listen yeah. to that someday. Wow. Yes, and now here, oh, here's a program from Oklahoma City, uh, October 9th. Oh, wow. Yeah, I went way so, back. This is yeah, like a big president tree. Yes, it's a, um, yeah, this is uh, Danny Hodge's second match ever in Oklahoma City. He debuted October 2nd, 1959, and actually, we're going to talk a little bit about his opponent later on in this podcast for his debut match, because his opponent is one of the people that pops up in one of the time periods we're covering on the blog. But this is a program from October 9th, 1959, uh, at the Stockyards City Coliseum in Oklahoma City, and the main event, as was often 
this the case in the late 50s, early 60s in the McGurk territory. There was usually a tag team match uh, involving not regular tag teams. It was usually two of the main eventers or upper mid-carters uh, from the face side against two of them from the heel side. But the uh, match is uh, on the baby face side. We have Chief Red Cloud and Joe Costello taking on Mr. Sasaki and the Great Bolo, who, of course, here was Al Lovelock. So, wow, this is uh, awesome. And seriously, John, thank you so much for the wonderful birthday card and the wonderful birthday You're presents. Um, but I hope you don't have any of those programs already. I, do, I, I, I don't. New edition. And that's what's, that's what's great about it is these are all new to me. I am not the only person in the Chart in the Territories family celebrating mm-hmm. this month. You see, my co-host, mm-hmm. John Boucher, as we are recording this, John is a single man. But by the time this podcast is released... We hope John will no longer be a single man. He's currently, he's currently <laughs> yeah, scheduled yeah. to no to no longer be single. Um, I, I guess anything can happen over the next few days. But John is uh, getting married to his longtime fiance. They have basically uh, survived quarantine together. Good sign for their future. So join me, listeners, in congratulating. John on his uh, impending nuptials, although by the time this uh, podcast is released, they will already have occurred. We'll be newlyweds. Yes, and just to answer all the questions, was that in the back of Ernie Ladd's jacket to answer all your questions? Um, any listeners have any questions or concerns? Uh, the, 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 the four questions everybody has, uh, I will answer. Yes, we planned this wedding way before uh, COVID happened, so this was planned way in advance. Uh, number two, uh, we could not move it or cancel it without losing many, 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 many thousands of dollars. Uh, it's sort of like you're in a, I'm in a situation like Vince McMahon. I've never really said that before. Like Vince at WrestleMania last year, where uh, because of the venue and the contract, we were not able to cancel without losing all our money. It had to be canceled by the state. Like they, the state had to shut everything down, which they didn't. And we're not having a big super spreader wedding. It's very, very small in a venue that is supposed to fit like 200 people. So it's essentially a very expensive dinner for our parents and us, but it'll be nonetheless fun and lovely. Well, considering all the dinners they bought you over the years and when, when, you, when you were growing up, <laughs> maybe perhaps we this will even the score. We owe them, yes. Um, but we also want to start the podcast by mentioning the recent passings of uh, – one wrestler and one promoter, uh, Buddy Colt, who spent part a good part of his early career in the McGurk territory wrestling as Cowboy Ron Reed. He first came in as a uh, underneath babyface, but uh, got a pretty big push as a tag team partner of Jack Donovan. It was Jack Donovan and Ron Reed, and they were managed by Jack Donovan's real-life wife who was female wrestler Vern Bottoms. Uh, but in this territory, when she was managing, she was usually billed as Mrs. Jack Donovan, but, but also Jim Crockett Jr., of course, yeah. who took over the reins of Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling not long after his father passed away in 1973. And we're actually going to be talking about Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling later on in this podcast. So another uh, relevant person, uh pursuant to our conversation, but uh, we, of course, uh, are thinking about the family and loved ones of both Buddy Colt and Jim Crockett Jr. Um, We're going to talk about the 
First quarter of 1973 in the McGurk territory. We're also going to look back at uh, the third quarter of 1963, and we're going to look at the first quarter of 1973 in Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling. This is something that I put out uh, a couple weeks ago, something I've been working with uh, for a little while with the guys from the Mid-Atlantic Gateway, which is a wonderful wrestling site and one of my first uh, forays into documenting uh, history by, by you know, printing all these old cars. And they even had some rankings and ratings, which are not too dissimilar from what I ended up doing with my spot rating statistics. So they honestly were very influential in the creation of charting the, charting the territories. And they were uh, kind enough to uh, share their uh, records with me, and we put together some spot ratings and feud scores for 1973 for Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling. We'll look at those later. Also, every month we have a Stats 101 feature. This month we're going to talk about WrestlingData.com, which is a website I refer to on a uh, almost daily basis. Uh, but we're going to try and get a feel for how complete slash thorough slash accurate they are. And I'm going to use a quote from Donald Rumsfeld. Uh, we, John, this might be the first <laughs> time ever a wrestling podcast has name dropped Mr. Rumsfeld. So we are making history, but we're also going to make yeah. history because we have a new feature this month. And this will be at the end of the podcast. And it's it's called This Month I Learned. And every month, John and I are going to bring up one thing that we learned. Each of us will bring up one thing that we learned uh, over the last month about wrestling or wrestling history that we didn't previously know. Um, because that's that's the amazing thing about wrestling history is uh, on a regular basis, I find out new things, uh, things that I didn't know. Um, so both John and I are going to share some of the things we learned each and every month. We're also going to talk a lot about statistics. And for more details on the statistics we talk about on the podcast, you can check out our blog at www.chartingtheterritories.com. Charting the Territories is a data-driven look at pro wrestling in the territorial era, with a primary focus on the Leroy McGurk, Bill Watts territory from the late 50s to the mid-80s. In addition to attempting to get records of every house show promoted in the territory during that time, we use the data that we have to create statistics that quantify wrestlers' achievements in a way that stats used in other sports can't capture, and that take into account the unique nature of pro wrestling. We have two main statistics that we will refer to often. The first is a SPOT rating. SPOT stands for Statistical Position Over Time, and it measures a wrestler's average position, or SPOT, on the cards. If a wrestler is always in the main events or near the top of the card, they're going to have a higher SPOT rating than someone who generally wrestles in the middle of the card or in the opening matches. SPOT is a number between 0 and 1, expressed as a two-digit decimal. A SPOT rating of 1.00 is technically a perfect score and means the wrestler was in the main event of every show they were advertised on in a given time period. The other statistic is a feud score, with feud standing for frequent encounters using data, and is used to measure the intensity of a feud based on how many times a match happens and how those matches are distributed over a short period of time. It's expressed as a whole integer, and as a broad rule of thumb, a feud score of 25 or higher means it's a feud. 40 or higher means it's a major feud. We're going to start uh, looking at the first quarter of 1973 in the Leroy McGurk slash Bill Watts territory, but the big news was the departure of one of those two men, and that, of course, was Bill Watts, who went to Georgia along with three other wrestlers that had been working here full-time. 
It was Watts, Tarzan Tyler, and the team of Chetty Yakuchi and Yasu Fuji. Uh, and John, of course, to recap why there was a little bit of an exodus to Georgia. We need to look at what happened in Georgia in late 1972. Uh, John, why don't you tell our listeners the big news in Georgia in, uh, I think, November or early December of 1972. And Gunkel splitting from uh, Buddy Fuller, Paul Jones, forming uh, All South Wrestling. And along with her goes more or less the whole Georgia crew, with the exception of uh, was it Bob Armstrong. Bob Armstrong mm-hmm. and then uh, mid-carder Daryl Cochran, I believe, yeah. stayed. Yeah. Um, but so so for the first month or two, they were literally just uh, loading up the shows, uh, Atlanta, the Friday night Atlanta shows with fly ins from all over the place. And just uh, this was, you know, all hands on deck, all the territory sending their best talent to try and squash the uh, outlaw promotion starting up. Um, eventually, they settle on a, a a permanent, you know, a more regular crew in early 1973. I have heard that Watts had had a falling out with McGurk around this time, and it sort of made the decision to leave easier. I can't confirm that, but I will say that on his way out, uh, Watts, who was the North American champion, did not drop that title. Um, uh, as a matter of fact, the last match I have record of him being advertised for was a show in the New Orleans suburb of Chalmette, where he took on Boris Malenko and, and Boris was not a regular here. He came in from Florida just for that one card. Um, but prior to that, it had, it had been him against Sweet Tan or Tyler or Watts teaming up with somebody to face the Mongols, who we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, but Watts really didn't uh, seem to give a two-week notice and put guys over on the way out, which lends credence to the theory that he had a slight falling out with McGurk uh, and made it easier to say goodbye. But uh, are you familiar with Watts's run in Georgia, John? I am not very familiar with that. No. He ends up having a really big run. He starts as a babyface. Um, and they do. I'm not I I don't have all the details, but I believe some unknown entity decides to put a bounty out on masks of masked wrestlers. And Watts as a babyface starts collecting these bounties. I believe he first uh unmasked the Zodiac, who is Bob Orton Sr. Yeah. Uh, then they bring in Dale Lewis as either Dr. Blood or Dr. Scarlet. They just bring him in for a few weeks and, and Watts unmask him. Also around this time, a, a newcomer, well, first, uh, Tim Woods came back to the territory and was working as Mr. Wrestling and brought a newcomer with him uh, by the name of Mr. Wrestling 2, who, of course, was Johnny Walker. And I, I don't know exactly how it happens, but I think this whole, the deal with Watts getting all this money for taking masks, they build to a, a number one contenders match between Watts and Tim Woods. And I think Watts goes crazy trying to get the mask of Tim, of Mr. Wrestling off, uh-huh. uh, basically ends up turning heel and has a huge run. He's basically the top heel uh, of the territory in 1973. And I believe he ends up getting the book 
in Georgia not too long after coming in full time. So it was a very big uh, and rewarding run. Of course, Watts, if he didn't already have a piece of the Georgia office, I assume he acquires a piece of it through this run. He had had a small piece of the McGurk office before leaving, but when he comes back here a couple years later, he's going to come in with a lot more stroke, and it earns him a much larger piece of the territory. And the rest, as they say, is history. Yeah. Did Watts do a, uh, a, a a Mr. Scarlet gimmick in St. Louis, or am I conflating my Mr. Scarlet's? It's very possible. One of the things I've noticed when, you know, obviously it's one thing for wrestlers to recycle gimmicks on themselves, but sometimes when they see a gimmick being used in one place, they'll bring it somewhere else. So perhaps Watts saw Dale Lewis using Dr. Scarlet here and brought it to St. Louis or vice versa. Uh, didn't we talk about how Watts had discovered a gimmick match in the AWA and brought it yeah. into this yeah, territory? Yeah. So there's a whole lot of recycling going on. But with Watts leaving, that leaves a pretty big uh, hole on the babyface side of the roster. So we will uh, sort of run down the main eventers in the McGurk territory in the first quarter of 1973. The top heel, based on our spot ratings, is Bruiser Bob Sweetan, followed by Tarzan Tyler, who leaves in uh, mid-February. Terry Garvin was a main eventer. He also leaves in February. Um, and replacing Tarzan Tyler and Terry Garvin are a, a few, a couple of returning faces and a couple of new faces, and there are two tag teams. First, we have the Mongols, and these are this is Beppo and is it Ghetto or Gito? I think it's Ghetto. Ghetto, not not Gato from uh, from Japan, but <laughs> Ghetto Mongol, and this was uh, Newton Tatry and the future. Nikolai Volkov. And the other tag team coming in is uh, the Hollywood Blondes of Buddy Roberts and Jerry Brown. I have seen one McGurk program from this time frame that refers to them as the Atomic Blondes. I had always Ooh. believed they used the Hollywood Blondes everywhere they go, but uh, perhaps they were also billed as the Atomic Blondes at some point. Um, on the babyface side, of course, we have Watts was the top babyface based on our spot rating. In fact, for several weeks, had a perfect Spot rating of 1.00. Beneath him was Danny Hodge, uh, Grizzly Smith, and the returning Dr. X, who I believe suffered a legitimate injury uh, during a feud with Bob Sweetan. So he took some time off and he comes back here. Um, and a little bit further down the cards, but still qualifying as main eventers based on their spot rating, we have Dennis Stamp, Bull Bolinski. It's very yeah. important, John. It's not Bull yes. Bolinski, it's Bull Bolinski. Bull. We'll get to that later. And the future missing link, Dewey Robertson. So uh, to a lot of listeners, I think most of our listeners are, are familiar with Dennis Stamp, and they know he's more than just the guy on the trampoline from that movie. But I do want to talk a little bit about Dennis Stamp, because he uh, really got shortchanged from that role and beyond the mat. Uh, it, it seems like he had a great sense of humor about it and just rolled with his newfound fame, even if it was as the butt of a joke. But it's important to understand that Dennis Stamp was uh, a main eventer in a few places uh, here and in Amarillo, also in uh, California. Um, yeah. So when we talk about Dennis Stamp, uh, I know Dave Meltzer's obituary had, had some interesting details. Yeah. Uh, John, why don't you talk about some of the uh, unique things 
uh, about Dennis Stamp's career that some of our listeners might not have known. But, you know, aside from the, the beyond the mat stuff and the association with the with the funks, um, like I was not aware that he was actually, uh, you know, not just a an excellent high school slash college athlete, um, you know, but he sort of recognized when, like, for example, when he worked uh, out west NWA Hollywood, he got a, a nice push out there, actually, he was teaming with S.G. Jones, which seems like such a fun tag team, S.G. Jones and and uh, Dennis Stamp. While he's there, he was actually used as, you know, a policeman of sorts for the promotion. Um, you know, normally this would be obviously Gene LaBelle's job, but he was doing like a lot of stuntman thing type stuff. So uh, that fell on Dennis. Uh, and, you know, he, he Dennis tells a story of like Brian Gumble coming down for a, a TV segment with a guy who, you know, guy wanted to be a wrestler and I think Louis, Louis Tillet was uh, one of the, the bookers there. And, you know, he wanted Dennis to, like, break a limb, you know, break a leg, break an arm. And Dennis didn't. And you know, just, just wore the guy out. Um, and when he was pissed, and this, this event combined with other political stuff, Dennis not wanting to be, you know, a stooge backstage, so on and so forth, uh, eventually led to him getting fired. You know, I don't really see Dennis as one of those guys who has that, that you know, that killer instinct, you know, like a Bob Roop. Or like an Eddie, like a sadistic, like an Eddie Graham or anything. Just seems like a guy who would rather just wear you out in the ring until you're you're breathing really heavy, slap you on the back and be like, you know, good try, pal. Uh, but that that I didn't know anything about that about Dennis, like that he was that sort of, you know, I wouldn't want to wouldn't call him like a like a hooker or a shooter or anything, but like very good uh, amateur wrestler, and you wouldn't know it by just what what you what you've seen on on TV or you know, on the, the AWA tapings or what have yeah, you. I believe he uh, went to Concordia College in Moorhead, Minnesota. And this is uh, this is directly from the April 1973 issue of Wrestling Review, where Stamp oh, yeah. was named Rookie of the Year. Um, but, on the cover. Yeah. Uh, but, and it's interesting, if you look at the other rookies at the time frame, a couple of them went on to pretty big things. So for Stamp to win yeah. this award, and I I know he was billed as Rookie of the Year when he came here, but I don't know if this was a WWA-only thing where they made up their own. Well, this is the WWAA. I don't know what that is, but it, I, I I don't know. But anyway, other rookies That's in 1972. The, uh, Wrestling Writers Association. Okay. Oh, the Wrestling, Wrestling Writers, Writers one of the most prestigious yeah. organizations in all of <laughs> literature <laughs> and journalism, I'm sure. God. Uh, but other rookies in 1972 were Bob Bruggers, Ric Flair, Jim Brunzel, Mike Graham, Bob Orton, Gene Lewis, and Chuck O'Connor, the future Big John stud, who we will be talking about later. So about half of those guys came from Vern Gagne's camp, which shows you how uh, important Gagne was as a trainer of future stars and superstars. Of course, Bob Bruggers' career was cut short uh, in one of the 1975 plane crashes. There were two big plane crashes involving wrestlers that year. Um, but it's a nice little write-up for Dennis Stamp. And the story you mentioned about uh, with Bryant Gumble came from uh, Dennis Stamp's book, which is called, this is very clever, The Stamp Collection. Yeah. It's a collection of short stories from the world's most famous unknown wrestler. You can read more about the story of when he met Bryant, when he met Bryant Gumble. 
uh, and refused to break the bone of an aspiring pro wrestler and basically got uh, sent to wrestling purgatory because of it. I'm not going to say where wrestling purgatory was, but you can buy his book on Amazon.com to find out. And John, there's some YouTube footage that you found from Australia. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah Dennis yeah. Stamp against George Barnes. And if you go to our blog or uh, our Twitter accounts, uh, we're going to be posting out links to some of the, the articles and YouTube videos that we discuss in this podcast. So you can sort of follow along. But there's a match from early 1974 was what you pegged it as. And as best I can tell, you are 100 percent correct. In fact, to go further, I'd say it's January 1974. Um, but it's Dennis Stamp against George Barnes. And here in the U.S., Barnes is best known, John, as? Ooh, I'm stumped. I don't know the answer to this. Oh, he uh, he came for he came to the U.S. for one run in one territory. And it wasn't him that was established, but it was his tag team partner who also came with him from Australia. That became a legend in the territory where they went a to. A legend. A superstar, if you will. Superstar Bill Dundee? Yes. George Barnes and Bill Dundee came to the uh, Goulas Territory in 75. Yes, Dennis Stamp against George Barnes. There's an interview with Stamp afterwards. So it's from January of 1974 when Stamp, um, on the video, they bill him as being 26 years old. But according to my information, he had turned 27 the previous December. So he's young uh, and early in his career. It's a nice little look at a young Dennis Stamp in action in the ring yeah. and on the mic. Yeah. And a nice little interview, yeah. Yeah, and, and real actual interview as well. Uh, there's also uh, an interview that Kevin Kelly, uh, current New Japan pro wrestling commentator, uh, had with Dennis Stamp on his podcast on A Place to Be Nation. And we'll also uh, have some links to his obituary, not just from uh, Dave Meltzer, but also a nice little obituary from Amarillo.com. There was a nice uh, write-up for him in the Amarillo newspaper on his passing. And there's a video clip uh, from Terry Funk's Roast a few years back where Dennis tells a a story. Um, you know, Dennis seems like the kind of guy who took it all in stride, even throughout his career. He, you know, as we discussed, he had some titles, he had some main event runs, but he never developed an ego about it. He just took it in stride and he, he saw it as his job and he did his job very well. And that's really yeah. in the grand scheme of things. That's all that matters. Yeah. And like Mike Tenay, uh, talked to like who was, uh, I didn't realize this either until I read the, the Meltzer obituary a, a few years ago that, that Dennis was sort of a mentor mentor to, to Mike Tenay. And Tenay gave a lot of insight into Dennis, the the guy. Um, and a lot of people, you know, would think that Dennis would come across bitter, but that necessarily wasn't the case. It's like Dennis was just more insightful, had an understanding of the business at a different level. Um, and, uh, you know, and Dennis would say to Tenay, you have to remember that this whole business is a lie. When you're in business where the foundation is a lie, you need to be prepared to prepared to be lied to by every promoter, every talent. Just always keep that in mind. So some might say that comes off as bitter. You know, others might just see that as pragmatic. The truth, yeah, the, yeah. The truth hurts. <laughs> Trust me, I, I've on a much smaller scale, my career in indie wrestling can pretty much validate all of that information. Um, but so that's Dennis Stamp. In a nutshell, uh, another one of the main eventers we mentioned was Bull Bolinski. 
And it's interesting because they sort of bill him as a relative newcomer to the squared circle. His gimmick was that of a truck driver turned wrestler. But in reality, he had been wrestling for quite a while under various other names. Um, But uh, there's an article from a McGurk program uh, where they mention he's a new name in wrestling, but he is a real veteran of the type of warfare that goes on in the squared circle, which I guess uh, apparently apparently some things happen at truck stops that that uh, might lead people to fight. There's a uh, uh, you sent me an article from uh, volume one, number three of All Star Championship Wrestling, the official WWA wrestling magazine. That's also the says, same one I sent you in the mail. Oh, oh it's also a present. It, yeah. It says, unlike most of the men in wrestling, Bolinsky can boast of no amateur background. Instead, he learned his brawling and fighting ways from real-life experience as a truck driver. It's also an article from the uh, January-slash-February 1972 issue of Wrestling World. Uh, There's some great pictures of him in an arm wrestling match against Larry Henning. But one of the things I found interesting in this article, there's a little bit of reality added into the story. Uh, But they talk about uh, a nationwide trucker strike. And this was a real thing in 1970. Um, The... uh, the Teamsters and the uh, trucking industry had negotiated a raise for truck drivers of a dollar ten an hour, um, but the team, but the um, Teamsters themselves decided this wasn't enough. Even after they already agreed to it, uh, and so there was a nationwide trucker strike, and they ended up getting uh, two. I believe the article I read said they got two thirds more than what was originally decided upon. So if it was originally a dollar ten, it would have been an extra seventy cents or so an hour more. Now, there's a much more famous nationwide trucker strike in 73 and 74, and those were uh, largely in part due to the oil crisis that was going on. But obviously, uh, that happened after this article. So they basically retconned the career of Frank Shields uh, and <laughs> instead of a just uh, a journeyman with a 12 years in the biz, they turned him into a guy who during a nationwide trucker strike said, you know what? I'm done with trucking. I'm going to become a wrestler. And uh, as we mentioned earlier, uh, there's a certain way you need to pronounce his name. It's not Bull Bolinsky. It's Bull Bolinsky. Oh. Uh, and oh, there's a YouTube clip, uh, which I believe is from the WWA, um, where he tells us how to pronounce his name. There's also some uh, excerpts from a 1973 match against Baron Von Raschke. Uh, you sent me. You also sent me a picture of him before all this when he was just Frank Shields. Um, yeah. well, well, he was the wrecker, the wrestling wrecker. for Ed McLemore in 1964 and 65. Uh, there's an expression on his face. I, I, John, do you watch Modern Family? Uh, my my lovely fiance does, so I watch okay. it with her. Cam. I may get that reference. I may get Cam the Cam of Cam and Mitch. Uh, oh yes, yes, yes. Totally. His facial yes. expression looks like Cam when he's upset or or, or flustered at something. Yeah. Um, but I'm that's totally a great picture with, yeah. with that gimmick, the wrecker. Like, what is the? I imagine like I hear the wrecker and I see that photo and I I, I thought like, what is it like? Is he, is he like OJ in the Naked Gun, where he's just walking into a room, like knocking over lamps, and you know, like burning himself on a frying pan? Like, what is what is what is what is the record wrecking? You know, 
or is it like a spoiler? Uh, maybe like it has a, something a to do with well, don't don't they call some big rig trucks like wreckers or something? I wonder if it may be kind maybe, of sort of similar practiced <laughs> to yeah to his truck driving thing. Who knows? But of course, if we go by the story that he was uh, discovered uh, at a truck stop by someone in wrestling, uh, Lord only knows what wrestling, you know, uh, promoters or bookers were doing hanging out at truck stops (laughs) at all hours of the day. We could probably do another podcast uh, on all of that. Yeah. yeah. But there's a few other uh, wrestlers a little bit further down the cars. If we keep going down, we look at some of the upper mid-carters. In the first quarter of 1973, we've got on the heel side, Jerry Miller and Duke Myers, uh, newcomer Rip Tyler. And he comes in a few weeks after Tarzan Tyler leaves. And uh, even though Tarzan is originally from Canada and Rip, I believe, is originally from Louisiana, they were billed here as brothers. Um, they, so they sort of, uh, when Rip came in, he, uh, I guess, is getting revenge on uh, the guys like Watts and Grizzly who had, uh, you know, hurt his brother, Tarzan. Uh, also have a newcomer, the spoiler, of course, uh, Don Jardine. He had a big run here in 70 and 71, and he returns to the uh, territory in March of 1973. Uh, also, we mentioned earlier, Chadi Yakuchi and Yasu Fuji finishing up. On the babyface side, finishing up, we have Ramon Torres, uh, who we mentioned earlier had a brief run with the World Junior Heavyweight title, winning it from Rip Kirby and losing it to Dr. X here before X would lose it back to Danny Hodge. And a couple of international babyfaces, one not so international, Skander Akbar, who, as we talked about uh, last month, is from Texas, uh, born and raised in <laughs> Texas. Um, but another uh, international star coming here for what I believe is the first time, and that's Johnny Eagles. And he's a guy, he had a lengthy career in the U.S., but for the most part, it was split between three territories and three territories only. And he went back and forth between uh, the McGurk Territory, uh, the Pacific Northwest, and the Goulas Territory. And in the Goulas Territory, he was not billed as Johnny Eagles. Uh, John, what was he billed as? Johnny Marlin. It was, it was, it's re- this is really interesting. It's an interesting story. Um like he shows up there like spring of 73 and they give him initially like a, a man of a thousand holds gimmick, you know, and Cornette's talked about this, like having his mo- mind blown by this guy because no one never seen a guy do stuff like this in Memphis before. Uh, and I, you, you read different stories from different people. Some folks say that he came in billed as Johnny Marlin, cousin of top babyface Eddie Marlin and his brother, Tommy. Uh, but Cornette says that because Johnny looked so much like Eddie, you know, with the 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 crooked smile and the Steve Buscemi eyes, uh, even more so than like Tommy's real brother did. Um, it was the fans who just insisted, like, "Oh, this must be Eddie's cousin from England." You know, come over to to help him, and the promotion just just latched onto it and went with it. Um, and he was Johnny Marlin for the rest of the six eight month run he had here. Uh, yeah, and it was it was a huge a huge thing. Never went back though. Never went back to uh, help Eddie after that though, which is odd. Never returned. Yeah, well, he um, he's also one of the earliest uh, wrestlers I know of that had a big chest tattoo. Oh yeah, he got big eagle. Yeah, Johnny Eagles Marlin. You mentioned Cornette. Um, there's an article that Cornette wrote for Fighting Spirit magazine where he talks about 
some of the British wrestlers he liked as a kid, including Johnny Eagles Marlin. Uh, we'll do a link to that. There's also an article uh, about his career before coming to the U.S. Uh, and you sent me an article from the July 1972 issue of Wrestling World, and it's touting oh, yeah. him as a uh, a leading contender, perhaps, for Danny Hodge and the World yeah. Junior Heavyweight Champion. Uh, one of the interesting things, and it's also written by Lil Al Vavasour, who was a longtime photographer uh, in Louisiana. Uh, and, and But he also uh, took photos and, I guess, apparently wrote some articles for the magazines. Uh, so this is about him coming to Louisiana. Well, interesting thing in the article is that in the U.S., uh, in, in the article, it says that in the U.S., the junior heavyweights alternate between wrestling in the heavyweight, quote-unquote, division and the junior heavyweight division, and that they have to cut weight when involved in junior heavyweight division <laughs> yeah. matches, and that in the U.K., that wasn't the case, and and trying to figure out if this would be an advantage or disadvantage for Eagles in his quest yeah. for junior heavyweight gold, not having to cut weight. I, I don't necessarily think that that's the case. I know Danny Hodge obviously wrestled against heavyweights regularly here, but he didn't necessarily bulk up to do it. Uh, so that's just one of those uh, creating a storyline just to have something interesting to say. And we do have some YouTube footage of Johnny Eagles. Uh, it's a th two out of three falls match from Portland against Buddy Rose. And if I, it, you know, if I ever have to watch Buddy Rose wrestling on YouTube, I will jump at the opportunity. Um, Buddy Rose, I would watch any match of his any day of the week. No questions asked. How good is he in this match, though? Like mm. he is a I think he's a perfect opponent for Johnny Eagles. Like he's the way he they I don't want to do a whole review of the whole match, obviously. But, you know, he tries to go move for move with Johnny failing, embarrassing himself the whole way. But still, the stuff he's doing is still very technically very good and very sound just to be able to do that. It, it, it's just, it, it's a fantastic, fantastic match. I love it. Yeah. It's, and it's a great use of Eagles too. Uh, you know, uh, Buddy Rose is, yeah. might be the perfect opponent at this period of time for Eagles. But again, with Buddy Rose, there's a lot of people you could say that about. You could say the, the match so-and-so had against Buddy Rose was, was so-and-so's best match ever. Uh, and Buddy Rose yeah. knew exactly how to work with him to, uh, you know, uh, accentuate the positives and, and hide the negatives. And that was the uh, genius of the the founder of the blow-away diet, <laughs> Playboy, Buddy Rose. We talked about uh, Dennis Stamp as the Rookie of the Year earlier. And one of the other mint names mentioned in that article was Chuck O'Connor. And Chuck O'Connor is, the, of course, the future Big John Studd. And Chuck O'Connor debuts in the McGurk Territory in the first quarter of 1973 in early February. Uh, he never really moves past the upper mid-carter range, and it's, you know, really interesting to see how the territories handle someone so tall yet so green, because you, you know, you can't just have him, you know, stuck in the prelims losing. Um, his, you know, he's just so tall that there has to be some aspect of believability to it. Um, so, It'll be interesting as we continue to track 1973 to see how far up he goes in the spot rating. So his first 
six, seven weeks here, his spot rating is between a 0.48 and a 0.53. So he's firmly entrenched in that mid-card category. But it looks like as we end the quarter, he's being moved up the card slightly. Um, the second to last week of March, it's up to a 0.58. And in the last week, it's a 0.64, which uh, technically makes him an upper mid-card or a spot rating of a 0.6 through a point eight is an upper mid carder. So that would put him uh, on par with guys like Chadi Yakuchi, Yasu Fuji, Johnny Eagles, uh, Skander Akbar, and Rip Tyler at this time. Um, there's a, a brief article about him in a McGurk program I have from the time period, but it's it's pretty generic. It's just he's coming here, he's tall in stature, and he's looking to make a name for himself. Um, they, he's built it from Kansas. Uh, and here they just say he's well over six feet. I know, uh, you know, when he's big John Studd, he's billed as what, six eight for most of yeah, his career? Yeah, six eight or six, yeah, yep. Six so, eight, 364 pounds. I remember the weight with always yeah. 364 pounds. <laughs> I, I would say, you know, if he was really close to six foot eight, that's what they'd have billed him all the way. But here they just say he's well over six feet. And bill him at 270 pounds. And uh, also at the bottom of this article from the program is the uh, always wonderful fans urge not to throw blurb. <laughs> so let, let's I want to read this. Uh, so it, the headline is fans urge not to throw. And then it says throwing objects at a sporting event is a cowardly act and anyone caught will be arrested and prosecuted by the wrestling club the wrestling club huh. all and the wrestling club is is uh the first letter of each word is capitalized that's so apparently that's a thing the throwing of anything regardless of how small can injure someone fans are urged to clap hands to holler to cheer to even boo but not to throw anything Please remember this, fans, and restrain <laughs> yourselves in the future. You got a talking down to there from uh, Leroy McGurk in this. Program. Yeah, I wonder, wonder what happened last month. Yeah, uh, so it's yeah, interesting. You, you, you know, talk I, about you talk about like the big guy thing, and what do you do with the big guy who's that big? And it's like the answer that they had in the the WWF was bring him back, put him under a mask, and have him team with Kowalski. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The executioner. That, yeah. Which is interesting, and then bring them back, you know, five years later, which is just interesting. Yeah, because so that way, at, yeah, I'm looking at the rest of the roster here, and and not only are there not any really tall guys, I mean, there never really were, except for Bill Watts in this territory. I guess well, Grizzly is a giant right. of a man, um, but you know, as far as lower down the card, there there's no one, no preliminary or mid card wrestler that they could put him in the ring with where it would look even close uh, in size, and you know, in these days, size meant a lot. Yeah. Uh, size mattered, but uh, some of the baby faces in the mid card and preliminary wrestlers category is Salento Rodriguez, Mike George, Igor Putsky, the professional who is Ani Wiki Wiki under a mask, um, one of the many wrestlers who used the ring name Sunni Warcloud. I think there were three of them, and this was one of those. Um, George Strickland, who we mentioned, I think, in our very first episode as the trainer of Dr. Sam Shepard. And uh, on the prel in the prelim prelims, pardon me, Terry Lathan. So these are not very tall or very big guys. I guess Igor Putsky is bulky, yeah. uh, so we could have a, a believable match with him and Chuck O'Connor, but uh, not so much the others. And uh, you you sent me a link to a YouTube match 
um, from 75 or 76, where he's wrestling as Chuck O'Connor against Dick the Bruiser. Oh, yeah. Uh, Dick, yeah, yeah, Dick the Bruiser, Dick Athlis, uh, one of the all-time legends in Chicago and Indianapolis. Um, you also sent me an interesting fact, and I believe this came from uh, Dave Meltzer's obituary uh, after Ch- uh, Big John Studd passed away. But he got a push in St. Louis, and, and that was always odd, because uh, Studd was never, you know, known as a great in-ring, you know, tactician. So for Sam Mushnick to uh, push him in St. Louis seems odd, but there's a reason. And what was that reason? (laughs) It's actually because of his reputation, not as a wrestler. No, it was because of his reputation as a basketball player. (laughs) And Mushnick was apparently like putting together and coaching a basketball team of wrestlers to play against like a local media celebrity charity event sort of thing. So he was trying to load the team up with ringers who could actually play basketball, like, like Chuck O'Connor. And I think, I think Ron Fuller was on the, on the team also. Yeah. Well, Ron Fuller is that a was, great basketball player. He was six foot uh, seven and he had three legs. Yeah. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gives a whole new meaning to the term posting up. Oh, wow. <laughs> But I guess that's the equivalent of, you know, some some office building hiring Jose Canseco to work in the warehouse so he can compete on their softball team. True, true. So, yes, even even in St. Louis, where wrestling was held to a higher standard, there's still some shenanigans going on to explain why some wrestlers were brought in that perhaps didn't belong. Um, but uh, you know, looking at some of the other wrestlers, we, we run down the entire crew on our blog at chartingtheterritories.com. You can see their spot ratings. Um, we also have some bios of uh, a lot of the wrestlers we talked about, plus some of the other newcomers, including a detailed analysis of which Eddie Sullivan was wrestling here at the time. There's actually three known Eddie Sullivan's in wrestling, uh, and all of them were active around the same time. Um, but what's interesting is that this Eddie Sullivan is not the one that Wrestling Data, the website, claims it is. Uh, we're going to talk later about Wrestling Data and how complete it is. It's also important to know that it's, while it's highly accurate, it's not as accurate as you might think. And uh, I can understand the confusion given that there are three Eddie Sullivan's, but I will say this the hint is that this Eddie Sullivan came in and is teaming with Rip Tyler. And uh, that almost certainly means it's uh, a gentleman by the name of Ruben Huizar, who was best known in Gulf Coast and was a regular tag team partner of Rip Tyler in Gulf Coast, uh, even in Washington State for Dean Silverstone and in a few other places. Uh, There's also a picture I have in a McGurk program that very clearly shows it is uh, Ruben Huizar and not one of the other Eddie Sullivan's. Uh, We also list the top feuds in the territory using our feud score metric, and they included a mid-card series of matches between Beautiful Brutus and Igor Putsky, a renewed feud between Bob Sweetan and Dr. X, and a feud between Danny Hodge and Jerry Miller. We take an in-depth look at the Hodge-Miller feud on the blog, listing all known matches and results, and we list the full advertised lineups for all known house shows in the territory. And in this quarter, John, we have listings for 194 house shows. 
in one territory in a 13-week period. So that's uh, approximately 15 per week. Uh, they're running at least two shows uh, during a night during the week and more likely three. Um, again, these are all only the known house shows. We absolutely are missing some. And the question is how many we are missing. And that's something, another thing we'll talk about later is uh, how we can guesstimate uh, what we don't know. Um, but yeah, that's on the blog. And we also look at the third quarter of 1963 on the blog. And this uh, we do every month. We look at a chunk of time from the 60s moving up. Uh, in the third quarter of 1963, uh, Great Bolo, Al Lovelock, is the uh, perennial top main event heel for uh, much of this time. Also, Louis Talley who I think yeah. we mentioned earlier. Um, and Great Bolo gets a buddy. He gets a tag team partner by the name of the Mighty Bolo. And we've talked about this in the past. Um, the Mighty Bolo was sort of uh, brought out every few years to be a tag team partner of Great Bolo. And each time he came in, it was someone else under the hood. Uh, at one point, it was Pepper Martin. Um, before Pepper Martin got fame uh, in, in Hollywood. Um, but at this point in time, I think... It's Jerry Usher, based on who else is in the territory at this time. He seems like the most likely candidate. Now, on the babyface side, Danny Hodge is actually in Portland in the third quarter of 1963. He, uh, he comes in for one week, but he's gone for most of the quarter. So at first, at the beginning of the quarter in July, the top babyface, based on our spot ratings, is Jack Curtis Jr., who recently yeah. passed away. Uh, also, Irish Pat Barrett um, crosses over the main eventer threshold briefly during the quarter, but then they bring in Jerry Kozak from Texas. Uh, and a couple of weeks after that, Bill Watts returns to the territory. And Watts and Kozak are put together as a babyface tag team, and they are feuding with the great Bolo and the mighty Bolo. We look at that on the blog, and it, they basically retcon the title history of the U.S. tag team titles, which they hadn't acknowledged in over a year. But they claim that the Bolo, the Bolo brothers, I don't think they were billed as brothers, but I'm just making that up. But they claim that great and mighty Bolo won the titles at some point uh, and are defending them against Bill Watts and Jerry Kozak. Uh, some other newcomers are have some interesting family ties. There's Bobby Fields, who is part of the... Uh, Fields family from Gulf Coast, who, whose uh, immediate family is not only very large, uh, but also are literally members of the Hatfield family of Hatfields and McCoy's fame. Um, the Fields are also related by marriage to the Welch Fuller wrestling clan, as if their tree, as if their family tree wasn't confusing enough. We like now it. have another ridiculous wrestling family intertwined with them. Uh, the Kozak wrestling family is much easier to map. There's Jerry, and there's his brother Nick, and that's it. But we also have a Rocket Monroe, and there were two wrestlers over the years uh, billed yeah. as Rocket Monroe. This one's the first one. What's interesting, he's billed as Sputnik's brother. He is, in reality, no relation at all. But here, he's managed by Jet Monroe, who is the real-life brother Excellent. of Sputnik Monroe. <laughs> 
So you have three family members billed as brothers, but only two of them are actual brothers. And then you have what I guess are billed as cousins, and that's the Scufflin Hillbillies, consisting of Slim and Willie Garrett. Uh, Slim had previously been billed as Cousin Slim, and he often managed an earlier version of the team. Garrett was better known as Billy Garrett and, and best known as working as a member of various masked tag teams, including Red Raiders and medics and interns. Um, he's usually teaming with uh, either Dick Dunn or Jim Starr through all those various incarnations. But there's another wrestler here uh, at the time who uh, not only wore many hats in pro wrestling, but he probably wore many belts. Because much <laughs> later in his career, he made many belts. Okay. And that is Nikita Malkovich. I think we mentioned at the top of the podcast um, when he was wrestling as Sasha the Great, he was the opponent for Danny Hodge in Hodge's first ever pro wrestling match in October, October 2nd, 1959 in Oklahoma City. But after leaving the territory and working elsewhere for a few years, he comes back not as Sasha the Great, but as Nikita Malkovich. And at one point, he is used as a manager slash wrestler here in the uh, late 60s. He becomes the manager for, I believe, Chaddy Cucci and Chuck Carbo. Um, he also manages the Rugged Russians in the yeah. WWF. And I didn't know this until I read this article that you sent me that comes from... The March 1972 issue of the Big Book of Wrestling, but the Rugged Russians were a masked tag team in the WWF, with the exception of John. Uh, when they wrestled in the garden, yes. they were not able to wear their masks. That was they they, were, they, they yeah. did not. Uh, Mill Mascaras has not had not yet uh, torn down that wall. So despite being a mass tag team in the rest of the territory, in Madison Square Garden, they did not wear their masks. Um, I don't think any of the fans there recognized them, but they were not no. Russians. They were Pedro Godoy and Juan Sebastian. Um, From uh, Chile and, I think, Spain? Sounds about right. I know Sebastian wrestled as El Gaucho for a, yes, a yes. lot of okay. his career, but they were managed by Mulkovich. But I think Malkovich is best known today as one of the uh, premier belt makers yeah. in wrestling history. Uh, also probably best known under his real name of Alex Malko or Alexander Malko. But there's uh, something interesting here that you showed me, uh, an article or a clip about Malkovich when he's wrestling. It says the wrestler is a foundry engineer who makes submarine and plane molds to be used in mass production. When he grows <laughs> too old to wrestle, he will resume his work as an engineer or devote full attention to painting. There's some uh, some truth in that. Like he's a guy. I think he's originally from you know the Ukraine. He's one of these guys like world traveler speaks you know six languages, the whole nine yards. Uh, settles in Toronto, and you know he legitimately did have did have a taste for the fine arts. He apparently had a, a violin collection. You know, he sculpted, he painted. Um, but I think in his in his pre wrestling life, he was actually a legitimate engineer in a foundry where they would uh, he would make molds, which sort of leads into his you know his 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 third career, uh, making the molds for those belt plates and making those belts. And so many belts that he's responsible for making. Like the WWWF one from the late 70s Bruno era through 82 when superstar Graham ripped up Backlund's belt and made him cry. It was very hard to rip up, which is a testament to the Mulco belt quality. Uh, 
the tag belts from that time, the WWF, the Mid-Atlantic, I think East Coast belts, a few different U.S. titles, like that awesome one with the, ma- with the, with the map of the U.S., like the actual United States on a big brown leather belt, Texas title, Florida title, uh, the Canadian title, of course. Oh, speaking of the, of the Canadian title, most of the information that I found, legitimate information I found on Muscle, comes from a book about the Canadian heavyweight title. Uh, called The Canadian Heavyweight Title by Andrew Calvert. And that is available through the Mid-Atlantic Gateway Bookstore, conveniently enough. So I, I highly recommend checking that out. Um, and through his research, he was able to look through correspondence from the Mulco family and you know, during the 70s, where Mulco says he made about 50, 50 belts altogether in total. Just, I'd love to like somehow get a list of a comprehensive list of the, the Mulco belts. It's funny. It's, as far as like belt makers go, you hear a lot about guys like these Reggie Parks, Dave Milliken, but you don't hear that much about Mulkovich uh, or the, or the Mulco belts as they're called. So it was great to find some info on him in this book. Yeah. And that, uh, the mid Atlantic gateway uh, can be found at mid Atlantic gateway.com. Uh, they have uh, books of their own that they publish, but also, as you mentioned, this book as well. Uh, there's also an article on ProWrestlingStories.com. It's about Dave Milliken, but it, uh, the article also talks about other belt makers, including Alexander Mulko. Uh, we'll post a link to that on our blog and on Twitter. So, yes, a man who had uh, several lives in pro wrestling yeah. uh, as a wrestler, then as a uh, almost a player coach where he's a manager and sometimes wrestler. And then later as a belt maker to the stars. Yeah. 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 Uh, another wrestler who I think everyone is familiar with, but may not know a whole lot about. Uh, and this is uh, what I previously told, uh, referred to as the swamp thing rule. Um, Because Swamp Thing was a movie in the 80s that everybody has heard of, but no one has actually seen. Uh, And Corsica Joe, I think, is a wrestler that everybody has heard of and might know one or two very basic things about him, but that's it. Uh, So we could talk a little bit more about Corsica Joe. And of course, you can't talk about Corsica Joe without talking about Corsica Jean or Corsica Sarah. So they are the Corsicans. Uh, and, and not the Corsicants, but the Corsicans. <laughs> um, but uh, the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame book, uh, the tag team edition, uh, Greg Oliver Greg Oliver, and Stephen Johnson's book, uh, talk about Corsica Joe and Corsica Jean. It's a fair bet that many wrestlers in the 1950s and 1960s could not pinpoint Corsica on a map. And... After being bashed in the ring by Corsica Joe and Corsica Jean, they probably lost any desire to find out more about the island region of France. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so, and they, yeah, they sort of look like, uh, it mentions they, they look like uh, French pirates. Yeah. Um, they had earrings. And, yeah. and uh, much as we talked about, Johnny Eagles had a chest tattoo back before everybody did. Uh, Corsica Joe and Corsica Jean had earrings at a time when not too many men, even in pro wrestling, which was known for, you know, uh, non, non-fashion norms, but uh, not many wrestlers had it. So Corsica Jean uh, was born in Montreal in 1922, Joe was born near Geneva in southeastern France in 1919, was a highly ranked amateur wrestler, and then turned pro in 1948. 
So he's been wrestling for a long time at this point when he comes to McGurk uh, in 1963. He'd been here before, um, but they, as a tag team, they really did well in Tennessee. Uh, yeah. Worked well uh, holding the tag titles there four times in the late 50s. And they feuded with the Fargos, another yeah. wrestling family that we will actually touch on a little bit later in this podcast. We will talk about one of the Fargos. Um, so uh, tell us a little bit more about Corsica Joe. It's, it's interesting there. Speaking of the run in Tennessee, for starters, it's, it's, it's the way, you know, Corsica Joe told the story. It was like that the, their, their extended run in Tennessee was almost kind of like an accident. Um, the, the story he tells is, is Tutsmond wanted them, wanted him back in New York, uh, but just him. Didn't want his partner, but Joe would not go without Gene. So Jim Crockett Sr., uh, you know, decides to book them as a t- team in Nashville. And they're like, uh-uh, they've got a bad reputation in Nashville. We don't want to go there. Not going to Nashville. Sorry. Um, so Crockett, you know, being a diplomat he is, says, just go for two weeks. If you hate it, come back and I'll book you in Charlotte. So they, they go to Nashville. They click down there like right off the bat, uh, sell out everywhere. Uh, and everybody's happy. And they're down there, you know, a huge, a huge deal from like 57 through the, the mid 60s, almost early 60s. Um, also read a little that they participated in is what does have been one of the speaking of the Fields family, one of the earliest cage matches against, uh, I think, Don Luke Fields in Alabama, surrounded by a chicken wire in 1960. Uh, that I thought was really interesting. The, the history of the cage match, whenever you hear someone, something claiming to be the first cage match, I've always make a, a note of it. So I have a running list of uh, cage matches. Uh, another, speaking of Sarah, I got to talk about Sarah Lee. Um, nobody doesn't like Sarah Lee. <laughs> nobody doesn't like Sarah Lee. Um, yeah, shortly after, I think this is after he had gone back to Europe, uh, worked in France and Germany, I think, returned to the U.S., Florida, I think, late 56, early 57, I think. Uh, and that's really when he met his his two greatest partners in life, uh, John Louis Roy, who would be Corsica Jean, and, and his future wife, Sarah Lee. Um, and they were married for, uh, you know, until her death in 2008. You know, 45 years, which is a, 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 a quite a feat for, for regular folks, let alone a couple in, involved in, in wrestling. And I think even after Joe and Sarah retired from being active wrestlers, they still worked in the, in the wrestling business on occasion, like working the door for Burt Prentice. And I think they were even involved in, in TNA in some capacity. Mm-hmm. I don't know exactly what, but in course, like a gene, uh, of course, like the really sad story, like shot and killed. Uh, at his restaurant in Tampa, Corsica Jean in Juanita's Palace Tavern, a place he had ran for like 15 years. Very sad, like and mysterious story, like unsolved mystery. I actually think uh, Bowdern and Barry featured this story on one of their unsolved mystery episodes. Um, but it's very, a very sad story for Corsica Jean. Yeah, there's a. Uh... Uh, that was a sad ending. You mentioned Corsica Joe passed also uh, several years ago. There's a, a nice story on slam wrestling. Uh, it's called Corsica Joe and Sarah Lee, a love story. Yeah, we'll, post a, we'll post a link to that on our blog and on Twitter. We've looked at 1973 
in the McGurk Territory uh, in 1963 as well. And we're going to now jump back to 1973 and talk about the first quarter of the year in Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling. And as I mentioned, this was uh, thanks to a uh, a partnership with the wonderful folks, uh, Dick Bourne, Mark Eastridge, and David, not sure if it's pronounced Chappelle or Chapel, um, uh, but they are run the Mid-Atlantic Gateway uh, at midatlanticgateway.com. Uh, they have graciously offered me their uh, their house show records, their house show clippings, and I put together spot ratings and feud scores quarter by quarter for 1973. And we posted the first quarter of 1973. And one of the first things you notice about the roster in Mid-Atlantic is it's huge. Yeah. There are a lot of wrestlers. <laughs> they were generally running three shows a night during the week. And they were famous at this point in time for having most shows having five matches with the main event and usually the semi-main event both being tag team matches. So if you do the math right off the bat, that is 14 wrestlers per show, two tag matches and three singles matches. And most of the tag teams here are they they are regular tag teams. Uh, unlike the McGurk territory where you might see Watts teaming with Danny Hodge one night and then, you know, with Johnny Eagles the next night or with Skander Akbar, um here the tag teams are much more set in stone. And on the heel side, the main event level tag teams are the team of Rip Hawk and Swede Hansen. Although there's a period of time in uh, February where Hansen is injured and Killer Carl Cox, who had just come to the territory and was getting pushed as a singles heel, um, where he takes Swede Hansen's place. But Rip Hawk and Swede Hansen, the Blonde Bombers, Ole and Gene Anderson, uh, the Canadians, Freddie Sweetan and Mike Dubois. And of course, Dubois is the future Alexis Smirnoff, right? Yes. Okay. Phew. That's what I thought. I just wanted to be sure. Uh, and the other main event level heel team is the Royal Kangaroos. And this is Jonathan Boyd and Norman Charles, also sometimes billed as Norman Frederick Charles III. And these are uh, another international team uh, coming to the U.S. and finding a great success. So, uh, John, have you ever thought of ranking the kangaroos? Do you have a favorite version or incarnation of uh, any of the various teams that worked as the kangaroos? Well, I mean, you'd have to put the Costello Heffernan version near the top of the list, I would imagine. They've got it as, as the original uh, fabulous kangaroos. And as you know, when you, when you get to, to this era where, you know, the, the, the Royal kangaroos are challenging the fabulous kangaroos, the, the Royal kangaroos ha- seem to have a significant advantage over those current kangaroos that are making the rounds there. Um, it's funny, I didn't know this until fairly recently, until within the last five or ten years, um, until I, I read the uh, Greg Oliver tag team book that we, we mentioned, that these guys didn't even become the Royal Kangaroos until they got to the U.S. Like, I, I thought they just came out of the wombs, out of their respective mother's wombs, as kangaroos with the hats and the... Well, and the the, but then if that was the case, wouldn't they come out of the pouch? Oh, true. Yes. Uh, so I think that's how we knew they weren't was for, because from from whence they came. <laughs> and I love the idea of them teaming, naming the team in reality as a tribute to the fabulous kangaroos, at, at least the Costello Heffernan version. But seeing it being seen by the 
their fans as you know trying to one up or or mock them. There's not a, not, not a lot of footage of these guys out there that I've seen. The only thing I've I've seen of them is uh, from that 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 Portland documentary. I think that's like mid 70s, 75, 76. There's lots of you know Norman Frederick Charles and Stampede and and Boyd stuff as a as a single and with the Sheep Harders Commonwealth Army later on, but not a lot of their big Portland rung. I mean, this might that that Portland doc might be the only footage that I've seen of them, aside from like the magazine. And yeah, photos. and that's a really interesting documentary. Uh, if our listeners haven't seen it, it's made in the mid seventies. And what's interesting is uh, the there's clips of them wrestling in the documentary, and they are wrestling against someone else we have talked about yeah. on this podcast uh, this month, and that's Johnny Eagles. And yeah. Eagles' partner here is Manny Cruz. And who is Manny Cruz? He's, uh, he's Invader number one. Yes. Uh, Jose Gonzalez. Jose Gonzalez, Invader number one, the man who will forever live in infamy. Um, yeah. One of the more interesting things about Norman Frederick Charles is uh, one of the first names he used while wrestling in Australia was Murphy the Surfy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I love that name so much. Uh, yeah. I later changed it to Murphy the Magnificent, but they uh, apparently they both trained together uh, in Australia under old-time wrestler Al Morgan at his gym in Sydney. Um, but yeah, I think here in the States, uh, they had this big run in Mid-Atlantic, but they're probably best known for uh, working on the West Coast uh, in yeah. Portland, uh, also San Francisco and Calgary. So they held titles literally up and down the West Coast. Now, back to our roster for Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling. We talked about some of the heel tag teams. On the babyface side, our uh, top tag teams are Big Boy Brown and Klondike Bill, although they're mostly used uh, as upper mid-carders. So they're probably in the semi-mains. Um, also, the K brother, two of the K brothers, who are the Cormiers from Canada. Uh, here we have Bobby K and Terry K. And what's interesting when you look at the spot ratings, you can very clearly see them being moved down the cards. And I think this was a seasonal thing. I believe the K's, because um, they ran their own territory up in Canada, which only operated in the, in the summer months, because they were a, a little bit further up north. So when the winter came, they would shut down their territory and they would literally, like birds, head south for the winter. So when they would come here, you know, they knew uh, how long they were here for. And as uh, as they were wrapping up their stay, they were just moved down the cards and used to put over uh, some of the newcomers. Uh, we also have Art Nelson and Johnny Weaver uh, and Jerry Briscoe and Thunderbolt Patterson. Um, and, and those four wrestlers, they're not as firmly entrenched in those two teams. Um, sometimes we see different combinations of those four wrestlers. Sometimes we see them as singles wrestlers. And sometimes we see them in six-man tags because there's a, a feud going on between Briscoe, Thunderbolt, and Weaver. Uh, and they're feuding with Rip Hawk, Sweet Hansen, and Hawk and Hansen's manager, General Homer O'Dell. Oh my! Uh, and so they build to six-man tag team matches. I I think the way they do it is um, they have a, a six-man tag in the town, and uh, it ends uh, it ends up being a lumberjacks with canes match the second week because uh, it wasn't that Homer Adele's gimmick. He has a cane. Yeah, yeah, and the helmet and the whole. Well, yeah. yeah, so yeah, so so the uh, the blow off 
uh, match in that case would be where all the lumberjacks had canes. And I could, I would imagine wow. that Homer Odell, uh, as well as his uh, wrestlers, took a thrashing with those canes to get the big pop from the crowd. Yeah. Oh God. Uh, yeah. But at this time, the titles are not billed as mid-Atlantic titles. The uh, singles title is the Eastern States heavyweight title, which I think you mentioned earlier is one of yep. Mulko's belts. Mulko. Yep. And the tag team belts uh, at this time are referred to as the Atlantic Coast tag team titles. I think later in the year is when the wheels are in motion for those titles to be renamed. Of course, 1973, a very important year in the life of the Mid-Atlantic Championship territory. Uh, we mentioned at the top of this podcast the recent passing of Jim Crockett Jr. Um, in the second quarter of 1973, his father, Jim Crockett Sr., passes away. And then later in the year, a, uh, a returning wrestler is offered a new role, and uh, that's when really big changes start to happen in this territory. So it's going to be really interesting as we follow this um from quarter to quarter in 1973 to see how the roster changes as a new uh, regime takes over behind the scenes um, and also a new booker will take over later in the year. So you can catch all that on the blog at www.chartingtheterritories.com, the first quarter of 1973 in Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling. And uh, going further down the roster, there's a lot of... Uh, Mid-carters who found success in other roles, guys like James Dillon, Les Thatcher, Frank Morrell. But if you go all the way down the list to the preliminary wrestler section, you will find a man who is literally one of the biggest short-term box office draws in wrestling history. Now here in Mid-Atlantic, he is mostly used as a referee and occasionally as a wrestler, billed as Sonny Fargo. But in Memphis, Tennessee, he is the one, the only Rough House Fargo, billed as uh, the as the crazy brother of Jackie Fargo, who could only be uh, taken out of the mental institution where he resided a couple of times a year, which always seemed to coincide with really big shows at the Mid South Coliseum. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if they, I you know, I don't know if they gave him a day pass or if this was like an A team type deal where they busted him out like howling man, howling mad Murdoch. But if you've never seen this gimmick, first off, it would not work today. But oh my god, it works so well. But. Uh, Sonny Fargo was not a very imposing specimen physically in any way, shape, or form, but he just played like he was completely batshit crazy. And he would, uh, you know, when he would first come out for the match, he would just run all over the place, chase the heels out of the ring, chase the referee out of the ring, chase the announcer out of the ring, run into the crowd, crowd. sit down next to the fans and start eating their popcorn, throw the popcorn into the ring. Uh, It's just... (laughs) Um, and he drew so well. I think Jim Cornette said, I, I think Jim, you know, knows the attendance figures for the territory better than anyone. But, um, as far as a, you know, short term attraction, nobody increased attendance over the previous week's house, uh, like Roughhouse Fargo did. Yeah. It's, I love the idea more than anything else. I just love the idea of like the, the, the dual life. Of Sonny Fargo, like a mild, mild mannered, yet no nonsense referee in the Carolinas. Uh, occasionally wrestle, wrestle in the prelims, like we see here. Uh, but a, like a main eventer, like well into middle age. 
in Tennessee. You know, and it's it's inter- and it's, this is also I thought this was interesting too, sort of a, a callback to what we were saying earlier about Johnny Eagles, Johnny Marlin, the way fans remember it. Like the majority of fans and all the, the Memphis history lore talks about, like you said, the Jackie Fargo when the chips were down and there was a particularly tough challenge. Uh, he would have to, you know, go and check Roughhouse out of the state mental hospital somewhere in North Carolina. I mean, other fans, when you read their recollection, remember it slightly differently. Differently. Um, I don't know if this is just wishful thinking or or, or what, but they remember it as Sunny slash Roughhouse Fargo was not an inpatient at the asylum, merely a security guard, which I thought that was an interesting sort of recollection that some folks had. Um, I wonder if maybe maybe they never specifically said he, you know, was a an a inhabitant of the mental institution. They just said he had to go to the mental institution to get him and let fans oh, so maybe make an assumption for themselves. Maybe, maybe. And just like, oh, and then when you see him throwing popcorn and yeah. shooting mustard at people, okay, he's a patient, not a security guard. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I got to say, this is not, I don't know if this is a popular opinion, but I really like him as a referee. I think Les Thatcher has talked about his appreciation of Sonny Fargo as a ref, and I want to echo that sentiment. Um, I think there's certain referees that just have that innate sense of when it is necessary to insert yourself into a match and when just to lay back. And Sonny Fargo, I think, is so good at that. So, so good at that. Uh, not to take the heat off uh, Roughhouse. If fans who watch Sonny Fargo in the day as a referee don't remember anything about him, to me, that's He's an indication great. that he did his job well. Yep, exactly. You can read more about that on the blog. And also, don't please please visit the Mid-Atlantic Gateway at midatlanticgateway.com. As we mentioned, they have uh, oh, some yeah. books for sale and a whole lot of other just incredible information on one of the you know most well-known wrestling territories of all time, and that's Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling. Uh, and now, yeah, now we move on to our Stats 101 segment. Uh, and we begin with a quote from February 12th, 2002 from Donald Rumsfeld. There are known knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. All right. I'll tell you what, he, he does a horrible job of, of explaining it, but really what it boils down to is, is you know, there are three categories of, of facts. And, and the reason I'm quoting this is because it's very applicable to professional wrestling history and professional wrestling historians. There are things that we know. There are things that we are aware of. We don't you know, actually have the knowledge, but we know what we're missing. But there are some times where we don't even know what we're missing and what this has to do with historians and and histories. When I first started charting the territories, I really, truly thought that taking all of the things we knew and whatever house shows I could find that weren't already out there, I could pinpoint to an exact figure exactly how many wrestling cards we were missing and I could, quote unquote, guess what those cards looked like, you know, what the matches were to a reasonable degree of certainty. I was wrong by a lot. (laughs) 
Now, that being said, if you remember a few months ago when we looked at the um, fourth quarter of 1972, there was that one week where we had every weekday house show except one. And in that case, I guessed at the lineup for that show, and I was probably pretty close to being right. But most of the time, we just don't know what we're missing. And one of the reasons for this is that house shows didn't have a fixed number of wrestlers on it. Um, There are shows in larger weekly cities, Tulsa, Oklahoma City, Shreveport, and they, generally speaking, had more wrestlers per show than the smaller weekly towns like Monroe or Fort Smith, which in turn had more wrestlers per show than the spot shows in the really small towns. Um, some of the McGurk shows and some of the Gula shows had as few as four wrestlers on it. They would have two singles bouts, an intermission, and then come back with the tag team match with those same four wrestlers. So, for example, if we know the crew consists of 24 wrestlers, and let's say on a given Tuesday, we can find bookings for 16 of them, which means we're missing eight. We don't know if we're only missing one show or if we're missing two shows. So we don't know what we don't know. And as I have found more and more house shows from the McGurk territory that were not already on Wrestling Data or Cage Match or in other books or sources, uh, whatever I thought I was missing, as I found more, I realized I was missing even more than I originally thought I was missing. So when it comes to sites like Wrestling Data, Cage Match, and the various books and message boards, how complete are they? John, the short answer is that it varies greatly from time period to time period and territory to territory. Um, They are probably much more complete for recent years, and in particular in 2020, uh, because of the pandemic, we probably are as close to complete as we could get. Um, There are probably a good number of small indie shows that, that don't have a you know nationwide portfolio that aren't listed, but I would say for the major promotions, we have literally everything. But if you go back to the territorial era, my house show listings for the McGurk-Watts territory between 1959 and 1986 contain right around 15,000 shows. So that's for a 27-year period. So that's an average of over 500 a year. More than half of the shows I have records of are not on any of the primary sites that house wrestling results like Wrestling Data or Cage Match. And my best current estimate is that what I have is about 65 to 70% complete. So if my records are two-thirds complete and the primary results sites only have half of what I have, that means they're one-third complete. Um, If you look at the Central States Wrestling Almanac I put out last month, again, I have twice as many house show listings as the sites combined. And my records for that territory are probably a little more complete, but somewhere between 70 and 80%. So again, it's woefully incomplete. Um, Now, for the big territories like the WWWF or Florida or Mid-Atlantic, it's probably closer to complete than that. But Gulf Coast, for most of Gulf Coast Championship Wrestling's history, there's literally nothing on Mm -hmm. Wrestling Data or Cage Match. There's hardly anything from Australia. Mexico has probably less than 10% of all shows up through the 90s. 
Um, Japan actually is very much complete. Um, in particular, uh, if you don't count the, the minor promotions, but all Japan, New Japan, the JWA, all that, I think they're, uh, really very complete. Um, but places like Bill Golden's territory or Gene Madrid in West Virginia or Rod Fenton in Arizona or Mike London, uh, at times when he's not, you know, booking solely through Amarillo, there's very incomplete or even non-existent. And, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it's just something that needs to be taken into consideration when you look at those sites is to just understand they're not as complete as you might think. They're also not as accurate as you might think. They're very accurate, but you're dealing with literally millions of pieces of data that even just a fraction of 1% if the, if a fraction of one percent is wrong, you're talking in the tens of thousands of inaccuracies. As we mentioned earlier, uh, I noticed there's a wrong Eddie Sullivan. Um, there's a few places where the stomper is incorrectly credited. Uh, it's either Archie Gouldy or Guy Mitchell or John Quinn, and they get it wrong. Um, looking at which version of the medics or the interns or the mighty Yankees. There are more mistakes than you might think. And one of the reasons my charting of the McGurk territory is taking me years is because I literally go through everything I have one at a time and look at it and confirm its accuracy and, and, and validity. Um, and it's a thankless job. But I do it anyway. But in, and with that being said, like we mentioned earlier, I still refer to wrestling data on almost a daily basis to look something up. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. But we should know that not only is it incomplete, but we don't know how com incomplete yeah. it is because of those pesky unknown unknowns. And that, <sighs> listeners, is all fucking Donald Rumsfeld's fault. Rummy. <laughs> uh. Uh, all right, let's let's move to something yeah. else. Let's move to a new feature and, on the podcast. And I think we're going to do this every month. And it's called This Month I Learned. And when I first proposed yeah. this to John, he loved the idea. And I we yeah. each have our own things. Now, John, I've decided you're always going to go first. Because this way, oh, great. just in case we both pick the same thing, I will always be armed with a second thing I learned. Just in wow. case. Okay. And... It's not going to apply this month, but John, I didn't, I didn't run this by you, but what do you think if every now and then we also open it up to it not being related to wrestling or do you want to stick to wrestling every oh, yeah. single month? Uh, oh yeah. I, 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 let's, let's, we could verge away from wrestling. We don't have to stick to wrestling. That's, that's yeah, John okay. McAdams. Uh, Cause I, this um, isn't going to be my thing. I, I learned this month, but this month I did learn about, uh, and I forget what they were called. Um, let me see if I still have it pulled up. But uh, the town, there's a town in Oregon that uh, made its oh yeah Myrtlewood money. Um, during the Great Depression, uh, several towns had to literally invent their own form of currency because the only bank in town would close. But what I wow. learned is one of these uh, created currencies is technically still legal tender in the town of North Bend, Oregon. And they're made out of wow. a very rare type of wood called uh, myrtle wood. So they they refer to it as myrtle wood money. And apparently, it's still 
legal tender in the town of North Bend, Oregon. But that's not the thing I'm going to talk about. So, John, you go first. This month, what did you learn? This month I learned, uh, well, everybody knows about the, the Crockett Cup tournaments from 1986 to 1988. But this month I learned that the ni- that 1986 Crockett Cup was not the first trophy to carry that name. Uh, this information, of course, comes from the Mid-Atlantic Gateway website, midatlanticgateway.com. One last plug there. Uh, in 1974, the Southern Hockey League, the SHL, uh, named their new championship trophy after the late Jim Crockett Sr., who passed away that previous year. Uh, it would be called the James Crockett Cup. Uh, Crockett was a big supporter of hockey in Charlotte and of the league in general. Uh, the league would you know, have teams in many of those mid-Atlantic towns that you, you'd, you'd recognize for wrestling, like Charlotte, Greensboro, Roanoke, uh, Winston-Salem, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and what's funny, that just like the wrestling version of the, the Crockett Cup, the hockey version was only presented for three years, from 74 to 76, huh. as the league folded midway through the 76-77 season. So that's what I learned this month. This month, I learned. Now, I already put this out on Twitter, but it's just a fascinating match to me. And it appears to be the only time this match ever happened. But we go back to the early 70s. Um, the Goulas territory, uh, if we recall, Jerry Jarrett was uh, promoting some of the towns uh, in the western end of the territory. And he asked uh, Goulas for permission to expand. And Goulas, uh, at that point, was pretty hands-off, said, you do whatever you want. I don't really care. Of course, once Jarrett started making money in those towns, it was a whole different story, but but I digress. So uh, <laughs> Jarrett opens up Louisville, Kentucky, and Evansville, Indiana, uh, and is running those towns regularly and doing pretty well. And, and this uh, attracts the attention of Dick the Bruiser, who technically had the rights to run these towns for the WWA. They had been towns that he had run in the past. He was not, he had not been running them for a while because he hadn't drawn well. So he sort of left those towns, but he still felt they were quote unquote, his towns. So uh, one of the things they did to keep the peace was that Jarrett would occasionally book wrestlers from uh, Dick, the Bruiser's territory into Louisville. And this leads to what, has to be the one of the most amazing matches ever. And this is November 9th, 1972 in Louisville, Kentucky, when in the opening match, Jackie Fargo faces Bobby Heenan. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, and Heenan at this point is, is you know, just a manager uh, for Bruiser. So, and given that it's, it's the opening match, this was not, you know, anything but uh, Heenan bumping around like a pinball for Fargo. I believe Fargo yeah. wins the one fall match in nine minutes. As I mentioned, I had talked about that earlier on my Twitter account. You can find me at, on Twitter at Al Getz Wrestling. That's Al G-E-T-Z wrestling and john your twitter uh, always has some amazing wrestling photographs from your vast collection uh, of, oh, yeah, uh yeah, that you've acquired program. over the years yeah. so uh let everyone know where they can find these wonderful treats on the interwebs i am following me on twitter please at john j-o-n underscore boucher b-o-u-c-h-e-r lots of lots of wrestling fun occasional non-wrestling but mostly wrestling fun 
Yes, and, and you can also uh, wish him a congratulations on his uh, impending nuptials, although by the time you hear yep. this, they will have already happened. So perhaps you can send your condolences or regrets uh, at that point. But uh, do follow him on Twitter. Really, it's, uh, he's got some great stuff about wrestling and also some really great stuff about music. Uh, next month on Charting the Territories, we're going to go back to the future. We're going to go to 1981 and look at the second quarter of Mid-South Wrestling. Uh, Ernie Ladd gets suspended by the Mid-South Board of Directors, but finds a way to continue to be a thorn in the side of Junkyard Dog and Dick Murdoch. And with Ladd out of in-ring action, they shoot one of those Bill Watts special angles that on the, on the TV show that is one of those multi-layered deals um, where they plug someone new into a role as a main event level heel. He wasn't new to the territory, but he was new to the heel side of things. So we'll talk a little bit more about this wonderful angle next month on the podcast. To be the first to know when new episodes are available, subscribe now wherever you find your favorite podcasts and at chartingthepodcast.com. As always, Charting the Territories is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. I made it to 50, and John is a married man, and we're we're still going to come back next month. So, John? Yeah, we'll see you in uh, April. Yes. Uh, hopefully your, your honeymoon goes well, and neither of you murder one another, and we will see you next month on the podcast. <laughs> Have a good month.